think of yourself as like a car. Like you need to take care of your car. You get one vehicle. So you need to do consistent oil changes and, and checkups and all that sort of stuff. So you need to do a checkup with your own body and your mind. Welcome to the Seamland Podcast. I'm your host Seamland. Today our guest is Joey Thurman. Joey is a celebrity trainer and coach. In this episode, we're going to talk about his new book, The Minimum Method, the least you can do to be a stronger, healthier, happier you. Joey, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, my friend. I mean, I, you were on mine and uh, I guess we're we're going back and forth here. So I, I appreciate you having me. Yeah. And I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Congratulations on the book. I think it's your first book, uh, right? So first with a publisher, um, I, I, this is my second book technically, but the first one was self-published. So okay. this was a, an entirely different process going through a publisher. Mm, yeah. Well, I've never published through a publisher. Uh, of all my books have been self-published, but uh, yeah, I guess <laughs> the, the book writing process generally is still the same. It's just that the uh, you know marketing and uh, publishing is a bit different. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got uh, definitely more hoops to jump through when you're with mm. a publisher, and the, like the time frame from me signing the deal to publish date is 18 months. When I did my first book, I had the idea in October, and I was you know it was out in January, so mm. you've got less to uh, you know l- less roadblocks along the way i should say if you're doing self-published but the publisher has its benefits as well yeah absolutely um but uh yeah so the minimum method like what made you you know first of all we can talk about like what what is it or you know what's uh, the main idea behind it and uh, yeah like what made you want to write a book about this topic yeah, so honestly, it kind of came beginning of COVID, you know, world shut down, I couldn't travel anymore. And, you know, I wasn't basically living in a gym, and I had to kind of put some stuff in my garage. And I started getting all these general questions from, you know, clients, like, what should I do? I've got these kids that are, you know, going to online school, and I've got to take care of them. And my work is at home. And so I started looking at what's the minimum effective dose for all sorts of things, whether whether it's sleep and gut health and working out and what can consistently get results for people just based off of the minimum. So, you know, minimum doesn't necessarily mean easy. I think sometimes people think it's easy, but just like, what's the little things that you can, you can do. And like, you know, you write about this a lot. What, what are these little habits, um, these lifestyle optimization things that you can do? And eventually then you add more things to that as opposed to just, you know, doing like two hours of working out and making sure that your nutrition's hundred percent and all of these things, it becomes overwhelming for most people. So that's why I took these different kind of uh, minimum mentality archetypes in the book. Like if you fit, you know, in the let's go category, you're kind of this person sort of starting. If you're a level up, you're sort of, you know, in the middle. You know, if you're a max out, you might be more like you and me or your listeners too that are that have done a lot of things, but they're looking to do maybe a little bit more and optimize their life just that much better. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good, let's say, miscon or a very important misconception that like more isn't always better. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like working out two hours a day, probably, you know, unless you're actually an athlete, then, uh, you probably just are either, you know, not having things optimized with your workout or you're like just overtraining and something like that. So yeah, like it's, it's this very, I don't know, human mentality to always, you know, want to do more um, and always think that more is kind of a better, but uh, yeah, like that's not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I fell into that mentality too. When I first started training, I apologized in the beginning of the book for the entire fitness and nutrition industry, even myself at 23 years old, I thought like, let me just kick the crap out of these people, make them feel out of shape. But then again, they're good. They're, they're CEOs and they're running multi-million dollar businesses. And then they can't sit down to go to the bathroom or they're like struggling, you know, that's not good for their lifestyle. So people are always trying to fit, you know, their life under their training, but their, their training needs to fit into their life. 
So that's why I kind of look at every aspect of that. Yes, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're an athlete, yeah, you're probably going to need more time in the gym for recovery purposes and for warming up, all that sort of stuff. For most people, they want to feel better, they want to move better, they want to look better. So you can spend less time in two hours in the gym doesn't mean you were deficient. Like you could do 10 sets of bench press in two hours and scroll on Instagram for the other, you know, 10 minutes in between. Mm. Or you've got 10 minutes like, hey, let me do 10 sets of bicep curls. Maybe you're not going to get as strong as possible. But at the same time, you're going to get a lot of volume in and volume is what dictates, you know, progress, you know, within your body and that stimulus throughout the week. And that's what we need to look at. Do you want to slow down aging? If you do, I'm looking for a few more people who want to reverse their biological clock. If you're interested, then send me an email to info at seamland.com and I'll send you all the details. How did you like maybe a bit about your background as well? So how did you get into like fitness and what's your journey been? There? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up playing all sorts of sports, um, soccer and hockey were my main ones, but I played hockey through college. Um, these teeth, uh, yeah, they're real. So uh, I played hockey through college, dabbled in juniors and uh, semi-pro and realized like, okay, I, I want to do this kind of fitness thing. But back in 2005, when I was a senior in college, I wasn't really exercise science for the most part in lots of universities. Um, there was some kinesiology and there wasn't really like Oh, let me become a personal trainer for a living. It was really, really fresh at the time. So my um, I ran into a physiology professor at my university and he's like, hey, I'm doing this personal training program. If you want to kind of get involved in it. And I was thinking about going to law school. I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. So got certified as a trainer and took a job um, at a big box gym in Chicago and then sort of developed my craft, started training lots of Chicago celebrities and movie stars when they were filming in Chicago and got certified in nutrition and started learning a lot more about my craft along the way. And I've got all sorts of different certifications, fitness, nutrition specialist, barefoot training specialist, um, obviously certified personal trainer, human movement specialist, corrective exercise specialist. There's a sleep certification, stress. I've got a lot of different things. So, you know, I, I realized I liked learning about this after college. I pretty much went to college to uh, play hockey and then um, started getting booked on local TV shows and national TV shows um, and all sorts of different publications around the world. So that's kind of, you know, um, my reputation of getting people results and looking at the people individually, um, kind of preceded me. And that's how I got all these opportunities. Nice. And so you, you know, you worked with, you know, I don't know, like hundreds of people and, uh, what would you say, uh, is like, what are, let's start with like one of the biggest mistakes when it comes to like fitness. So yeah, like you have this, you know, person who tries to start working out tries to get fit and they don't have like that much background in it or they're like very new to it so what would be like some very beginner you know biggest mistakes or misconceptions that uh you know people make like this you know working out too long or something like that yeah so i mean working out too long is is definitely a lot if if you haven't lifted weights since high school sports or football and it's been 30 years you don't go back to that same program you did your body's gonna it's gonna be too much it's gonna be too much load think of yourself as like a car like you need to take care of your car. You get one vehicle. So you need to do consistent oil changes and, and checkups and all that sort of stuff. So you need to do a checkup with your own body and your mind. So you want to, you don't want to back squat 300 pounds if you were doing that 30 years ago. Same thing. Like if you've never worked out before, like that's a lot of load. So I'd say start with one or two days a week of resistance training and just get some movement in there and be consistent over intensity. People will go for intensity first and they forget about it. Forget about consistency. So like you need to be working out and and getting that movement protocol just consistently throughout weeks and months on end to develop a habit 
And then focus on the basic movements, your squat, your hinge, your, your, your pull, your press, your horizontal press, things like that. Those are going to get you much further than these Instagram workouts and things that people see all the time because the people and the athletes and the gymnasts and everything that are doing these crazy exercises, they didn't get their body from doing those exercises. They stay mm. with the basics, you know, the lunge, push, press, pull, hinge, all those sorts of things. Rotate if you want to throw that in there. Um, and then they did the harder things because their body, you know, was either used to it or they just wanted to break up, you know, for their mind, make it a little bit harder for them and more challenging. So um, stick with the basics, stay consistent and realize you don't need, why would you want to work out five days a week if you haven't worked out in your life or it's been 30 something years because then your body adapts too fast and then you need to add more volume, more volume or cut more calories or do whatever. And you're like, oh, I, I plateaued very fast. You want your body to adapt, but you want it to adapt slowly and consistently over time. That's why when you look at like weight loss studies and things like that, people who lose a bunch of weight in the beginning and plateau is pretty fast. Well, you know, one, it depends on what kind of diet they're on. Like they're going to lose a bunch of water weight if they're doing low carbohydrates, but they're going to lose a bunch of weight in the beginning and then their weight loss plateaus and like, oh, what's happening? So if we keep that ace up our sleeve consistently, okay, I'm going to move more. I'm going to eat a little bit better. I'm going to sleep better. Then the weight mm -hmm. is consistently going down one to 2% you know, each week, if you're looking at the research to keep that off consistently and then, okay, how can I add more movement four weeks from now? How can I add another day of weight training? You know, think about those positive behaviors that you're adding, as opposed to the negative ones that you're trying to take away. Mm, right. Yeah. I mean, with a diet, it's especially this case as well. Like they go on a diet, like whatever diet they want, want to go on. And for them, it just means that they start to eat only like 500 calories a day of some, <laughs> of some, uh, you know, celery and stuff like that, which is definitely like works in the short term for a few weeks, probably, or in a few days or, but after a week or two, then yeah, like the plateaus start in, or they just uh, binge and rebound. So yeah, like the same all in mentality. Yeah. It's, it's not going to be that sustainable over the long term. Yeah, I mean, that's called hyperphagia. So if you look at bodybuilders and fitness competitors, this happens all the time with them. They're restricted so long. So imagine the hungriest you've ever been in your life and do that for like 12 weeks while you're cutting down for a bodybuilding competition. Then all of a sudden, right afterwards, they they go and binge and have a, a buff and they just can't stop because there's there's literally a chemical response happening in, in, in their brain, in their body, in their, in their gut. And they're talking to themselves and it's like, oh, I can't stop because I've restricted myself for so long. So that's like the extreme version of that. And then they're messing their reverse diet up as well, because if you're cutting calories for a certain amount of time, you also need to reverse diet and slowly add calories back. So your body gets used to it. Otherwise you have metabolic adaptation too fast. Mm. So if you're taking in 500 calories of celery, like you said, yeah, that's going to work in the short term, you know, but your, your, your short-term, your short-term goals are sacrificing your long-term games. So then if you're having 500 calories, you lose your 10 or 20 pounds. Great. But what happens after that? Then you've got a, you've got 500 calories. You need to cut more calories. You need to add more exercise, and it just becomes daunting. And your metabolic rate, your non-exercise activity slows down naturally. It's called the um, um, energy constrained model of exercise. You're just going to naturally move around less. So then, what do you do? You did too much, too fast, um, and you and you cut too much. So I'd rather people go like to a maintenance level of calories first for a few weeks, do some mm -hmm. more movement, start exercising, and see what happens to your body and to your mind. Because, you know, like in the end, like when you, whatever diet you're looking at, as long as protein's equated, it's, it's calories that are going to matter as far as your weight. And then the macronutrients determine how you look. And then the micronutrients are going to determine how you feel, your vitamins, your minerals. Because if you completely get rid of all these different food groups, you're missing out on fiber and different vitamins. Eventually your body's going to catch up and biology is not going to lie to you. and You're going to feel like crap. 
But the short-term goal of you look, losing 10 pounds sure was great, but long-term you wanted to lose 30 pounds and you just kind of wrecked it because you wanted to hit that short-term goal. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So uh, how would you go about like, how would you go about with the steps? So how do you progress with that? So, you know, you at first you go on the diet and uh, you you don't go all in with it you go slowly so like mm -hmm. when do you ramp things up where do you ramp things up with exercise or where do you ramp things up with diet so if you like yeah like if, if you hit like a plateau or when do you know like when should you like you know move forward with the intensity of sure. the program sure if you've been doing something for a few weeks and i feel like you know either the the scale like scale is not a direct indication of results by the way people so um if you've been plateaued for a couple of weeks, whether it's strength, whether it's body fat, whether it's the scale, whether it's the way your clothes are fitting, then you need to kind of do what like a life assessment. I, said, I talk about that kind of just a thought cycle. Think about what your day looks like and what you're doing now. So do you have room to cut some calories? Do you have some room to add some more movement in there? And then just add that one thing along the way. It's like if you were taking 100 supplements at once and you feel better, how do you know which supplement worked? When if you're adding one supplement at a time, weeks on end, then you can kind of pinpoint it a little bit more because you actually know, you know, what was happening there. Um, so after two to three weeks, that's why I like doing just that assessment, seeing where you're at, seeing where your body's at, seeing where your strength is at, seeing where your mood is at, your sleep, all these different things. And then you look at it. I'd rather people burn off their calories as opposed to starve them off because I feel like people, their mood is much better when they're able to eat more. Hmm. So like when you're when you're working out, I people I prefer people whether you're trying to add muscle tissue or trying to lose fat because we get to say lose weight, but lose weight is that doesn't mean you're actually losing quality tissue, right? It doesn't mean you're losing fat. So I'd rather people be hypercaloric around their workouts, meaning they're consuming more calories around their workouts. And if you're trying to add muscle, then you're going to be hypercaloric the entire day. And if you're trying to lose fat, you're going to have more calories around the workout because what matters in the end is the calories throughout the day. And the thermodynamics if you're burning more than you're taking in so mm. if you can you increase your calories you know have a little bit more protein maybe you have some you know healthy carbohydrates to fuel your body maybe some simple carbs around the workout if you're weight training then you're full during that workout you're fueling your workout and then the rest of the day you're having less calories so you're making sure that you're on a calorie deficit that often mm. i feel feel does very well for people i mean you could do like a little carb cycling where you're having more carbs or you're having more calories during the days that you're lifting weights and you're having less, you know, on the, on the other times, you don't need to be stuck in a certain diet or protocol every single day of the week. I mean, one, one day, you may be a little bit more keto one day, maybe mm. a little more carnivore. Uh, one day, like you focus on, you know, having a little bit more fiber and carbohydrates, um, you know, cleaner sources, but I think we get stuck in a box too much. Um, so just do that, do that life assessment and then add those little things one at a time. Um, that should really help you out there. Mm, yeah i think i mean that's i think i've been doing that myself as well for you know many years like having just a bit more calories on the days that i work out and uh, if i'm not working out then i'll just eat less because you know naturally if you move a bit less and you don't exercise then you're going to burn fewer calories anyway mm -hmm. so <laughs> it doesn't make sense to like eat uh, like a lot of uh, food on that day and this also like helps to prevent like this you know like bodybuilders they get like super bulky and super fat during the off season and then mm -hmm. they have to like starve and uh, cut down on the uh, cutting season so with that you just maintain like some of this good re relative leanness uh, all the time without and gaining muscle as well at the same time without having to go to these extremes of having to like either cut down ag aggressively or bulk up super aggressively either yeah, that's that dirty bulk. It's it's kind of gone now. So if you look mm -hmm. at a lot of the research, when you say if you go about twenty percent above 
your maintenance calories, you know, so like if you're trying to add muscle tissue, generally people say add, you know, three to 500 calories a day. But if you're going more than 20% above, the amount of quality tissue, you're actually going to gain more fat. Where if you're like 10 to 20% above your maintenance calories, so let's say you're 2000 basal metabolic rate, then you let you start with 200 or maybe 400 extra calories a day for a couple of weeks and see how your body is responding to that. And then, yes, you could have more of those calories during workout days. Like I, I love doing that. And then on non-workout days, maybe you fast a little bit longer. Maybe you just have a protein shake or like steak and eggs in the morning, you know, if, if that's your thing. Um, you do that, you're going to feel so much better and you're going to stay leaner and then that quality tissue is going to be better. So when you got to cut down for a bodybuilding competition, you got to cut down for a, a vacation, then you don't have to get rid of as much fat and you can maintain more muscle tissue along the way because that's always what bodybuilders are trying to fight. When they're losing weight, they're trying to, you're never going to lose just fat. It's just that that's not going to happen. You know, and then 70% of muscle is comprised of water anyway. So you're just naturally going to deflate a little bit. So how can you maintain as much quality lean tissue as possible? And if you did a dirty bulk, you're going to have to really cut and do, you know, extra cardio and cut your calories even more. And you're going to feel like crap for a longer duration of time. And then that's going to show up on stage or in pictures or something like that. Mm, yeah. And I've, I've heard that actually over time it stops working. So like every time you do these extreme, like, you know, semi-starvation diets, then uh, every time you're going to look worse <laughs> because you start to lose more muscle tissue and your body becomes more resistant to the fat loss as well. So you're going to look less muscular and more fat every time you do it. <laughs> At least that's what I've heard from like competitors uh, who are in bodybuilding. And uh, yeah, the smarter approach is to yeah, just not go into these extremes and maintain like this relative uh, similarity in your body composition mm -hmm. year round all the time. Yeah, that's why I like the the whole concept of reverse dieting. So if you and you always got to reassess where you're at your baseline. So if you're a, let's say you're a 200 pound you know bodybuilder, you know when you're on stage, but you started at whatever 220 and you cut down 20 pounds, you're gonna have a new set point for your basal metabolic rate. So you can't go back to the calories that you're at when you're at 220. You need to see where you're at and then go up like five percent each week. So if you finished at 2,000 calories, then maybe you go up five percent week one. And then week two, you go up another 5%. So you slowly go up until you kind of reach that new set point. And then you can you can maintain for a while because nobody should be on a diet all year round. You know, that's just that's just too stressful on your body. So you should go, you know, up in fluctuations. Think of yourself as an athlete, whether you're a bodybuilder or you're just listening to this, the podcast to look better and feel better. Like athletes have off days, they have off weeks, they have off seasons. And that's when they're doing the things that they're not going to do. So you look at I was a hockey player, so you look at um, NHL players, they try to add a bunch of muscle tissue in the off season because during the off season, they're doing so much, you know, anaerobic work on the ice that they're just trying to keep as much muscle tissue as possible, but they're on the ice several hours per day. So they're trying to add muscle tissue then closer towards the season. Then they're doing a little more speed work to get more game ready. So even these athletes are, are doing this and we should treat ourselves more that way. And I think we'd be better off as an, an entire culture and we'd be much healthier if we started looking at that and we like, hey, there's going to be periods where we're going to have more calories, we're going to have less calories, we're going to have more activity, we're going to have less activity. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And rest is also, yeah, <laughs> quite Huge. important. Yeah, yeah that's, why, that's why they have, like, that's why they have bye weeks, they have off weeks. You look at, you know, like in the NFL, for example, they're getting hit every single play and that's why they need to take these off days and make their body recover and their mind recover so they can prepare them for, for the next day. But like if, if you can't recover from your or your workout, you can't have a good workout the next day. And then you're chronically always going to have some sort of lagging issue. And then you're going to have some sort of compensations or asymmetric, asymmetrical movement patterns. 
And then that's going to stem all the way up or down your kinetic chain. And then that's going to cause an injury to something else. And then it just, it, it keeps snowballing. So if you're not taking the time, I've got a whole recovery chapter in there, whether you're doing like some dy dynamic movement prep before your workout, you're doing some, you know, light tissue foam rolling and some, you know, dynamic stretching and then finishing even with some recovery breathing. Because I think that's what people lose a lot is at a bare minimum, just literally after you're done working out, lay on the ground for three minutes and do some recovery breaths. And it doesn't even need to be crazy where it's a four, seven, eight breathing or anything like that. Just literally in through your nose and a double exhalation for three minutes and calm yourself down. So your body goes from, you know, sympathetic, which is stressful working out to parasympathetic. So it's rest, digest, recover. So when you're having that protein shake or that post-workout meal, your body can produce those digestive enzymes to break down the meal, to break down the amino acids, to fuel your body so you can recover better. And most people even miss that because like, oh, I get in the gym, I'm done. I chug my protein shake as I'm going back to work or whatever it is. Just take three minutes or five minutes just to sit down or lay down, put your feet up so you get that uh, the venous return, you get the blood flow back to your body, you know, back to your heart and you calm yourself down. Just focus on your breath, put on some calming music. Maybe you put on Seam's podcast, you know, like something like that. Um, look at that plug for you. And then mm. you're just, you're, you're good. You're nice and calm and then you're ready to digest your food. Mm, yeah that's true uh, but let's say what is so for someone who uh, you know already has achieved some good results and they want to maintain it what will be like uh, like this minimal method yeah. for achieving that or maintaining their results for someone like very like busy and they can't don't have much time to work out so what's their like minimal method for you know eating and exercise yeah. So exercise for, if you're looking at um, a lot of the research where it goes towards just maintaining muscle tissue. So if, if that's your goal is to maintain the muscle tissue, five to 10 sets per week per body part, close to failure. It doesn't need to be like, if you're doing a bicep curl, you can't do one if somebody's holding a gun to your head, but you're within like one to two reps in reserve, as I say. So let's say you're going for 10 and you can only hit eight. That's probably pretty good. You want to do five working sets. So after your warm up. So if you're doing like an upper body day, you do you know, a couple of warm up sets, get the tissues warm, and then five working sets. That could be in one day, or that could be in two or three days. Five to ten sets per week. If you're a beginner, that five sets will add muscle tissue. That will naturally add strength. So right there, it doesn't seem like it's it doesn't it's not that difficult to maintain the muscle as as long as you're putting the effort in the gym. So get to that point where it's pretty much hard to do one or two more reps with each muscle group. So that's five bicep, five tricep, five back, five legs, everything like that. And you'll maintain that muscle. Um, hmm. So that's that's a really good protocol uh, for people to do. Um, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld came out with a lot of that research too, um, and colleagues. And then if you're if you haven't worked out at all, five sets per week, five to ten sets per week will add muscle tissue, and that's cumulative. That could be full body three days in a row, because then again, like the old where you can't do body parts in a row, uh, that's from bodybuilding folklore when they're doing like 20, 24 sets in a workout. Yeah, you don't want to do 24 sets of biceps and then the next day do biceps again. But if we're looking at cumulative load throughout the week, so a volume load, 10 sets per week, you could do full body. You could do three or four sets of full body, each body group, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if you want, and you covered your entire week and to get some more movement and walking and things right there. So that a minimum to maintain or add muscle tissue, five to 10 sets per uh, body part. And then just movement, 30 minutes of movement per day is going to reduce, reduce your mortality rate by around 30%. So whether that's, I like people walking after their meals, like a 10 minute walk after your meal, a brisk walk, that's a prokinetic. It helps digestion. It helps the nutrient bioavailability of your food. 
So if you did that three times a day, if you're eating three times a day, 10 plus 10 plus 10 equals 30. You've got your 30 minutes of movement where you don't need to go on a treadmill, preferably do this outside in the sun. So you're getting, you know, uh, multi um, factors that are beneficial for you. So you're getting the sunlight. If you're doing that in the morning, that's, tr that's triggering circadian rhythm. Don't wear your sunglasses. You're getting the movement and you're getting that forward locomotion. If you can do it in nature, even better. So at a minimum, so you're doing all these things here and you go nutrition, prioritize protein, a round of gram per pound. If you can now, if you're obese, that's going to be overestimating. Um, then you can look at lean tissue, but a round of gram per pound of body weight is going to be um, going to be good for people. Um, if you're looking at you know, kilograms equal to kilograms too. So you do that and then you add more positive whole foods um, to your life. So there was a study at a university of Michigan that people that had more whole foods, whether that's you know a lean protein source, whether it's your chicken, your turkey, your fish, or your, your vegetables you know, or your fruits, by them having that in a day, by still having the standard American diet, which is like highly processed chips and sodas and things, they ate 500 calories less a day without even tracking their food. Mm. So at a minimum, you add more whole food, something that has moved before or something that has grown before. The, re the research is clear. You're, you're going to have more fiber. You're going to have more protein. You're going to be more satiated. Your microbiome is going to be healthier because that fiber and the prebiotics are going to help feed the expensive probiotics that a lot of people take. And it's going to make you feel better, not only physically, but mentally as well. So eat more whole foods, get 30 minutes of movement in a day, at least five days a week. So you hit that 150 minimum per week and five to 10 sets per body part um, per week is, is going to maintain, if not add muscle tissue. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's very easy to maintain and you can even do it at home like like you can do like push-ups in between work or something uh or something. Yeah. so if you pull-ups if you have a pull-up bar a few sprints or something like that uh, it's very easy to maintain uh what you have for sure like it takes literally no like effort <laughs> when you like actually think about it yeah and sprints for example i like to, people doing sprints on a slight incline because then you prevent the overreaching so a lot of people when they do sprints they're they're leading with their foot too much and they're actually landing with their heel first and then their hamstring hits and they have to decelerate. That's why you get a lot of hamstring uh, tears and pulls when people are doing sprints that aren't, don't know how to basically cycle through. But if you're doing an uphill run, one, you get more posterior chains, so you get more hamstrings and glutes, which a lot of us need more of. And you're driving up and that hill will prevent you from overreaching. So if you do that and you do like a, a true sprint, like a true sprint is only 10 to 15 seconds because our, yeah. our anaerobic system, like a um, creatine phosphate system only lasts 10 to 15 seconds. If you look at a sprinter, that's running a hundred meters by halfway through, they're pretty much trying to maintain that speed. They can no longer accelerate. That's why you look at back in the day, Usain Bolt, you know, the last 30 meters, he's looking backwards because he's seeing where everybody is because he's only maintaining that speed. He can't accelerate anymore. So that, you know, that's, that's, that, that's that quick energy system. So if we're training that we're training more fast twitch muscle fibers, which are the thick explosive muscle fibers that are more metabolically active, we're going to keep those more. Where the slow twitch muscle fibers, the ones that are more um, responsive for like just endurance and keeping us upright throughout the day, those we don't lose, but we will literally lose type two muscle fibers if we don't use them throughout our life. So yeah, throw yeah. in a sprint, throw in, um, there was a study on VO2 max, which is the amount of oxygen that you can intake. So basically like cardiovascular fitness on soccer players. And for them to maintain their VO2 max at 87% of their maximum heart rate. So if you just do 220 minus your age and do multiply that by 87%, they did four sets of sprints on a treadmill for five minutes with a five minute breather in between. So cumulative workload of 20 minutes. 
and they maintain their VO2 max only at once every two weeks. Hmm. We think about it, like at a minimum, that's very, very easy to do. And if you don't do that on your own, you do that once or twice a month, I guarantee you're going to increase your VO2 max because that's something new. It's a new stimulus. So we're pushing that envelope a little bit. We're doing the hard things in life just a little bit to make our life that much easier. So yes, it's straining. Like you, you could even take that same protocol. You could do it on a bike. You could do it an up, uphill walk and context is king. So if walking uphill on a treadmill for you at, at 10 degrees at three miles per hour gets your heart rate up to 87% or above, you're increasing your VO2 max right there. It doesn't have to be a sprint, even though that's what the research said. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And sprint, but like with age, you do see primarily that the uh, fast twitch muscle fibers uh, go away or mm -hmm. decrease and uh, the slow twitch doesn't. So like, you know, and with all the people, when you look at them, they're uh, like very stiff or they're not able to like do fast <laughs> movements. So yeah, like you do need to train your fast twitch muscle fibers actually a lot more than uh, yeah, like mm -hmm. the slow twitch uh, muscle fibers. How would you like go about, you know, uh, doing this programming the sprint like so you mentioned that you know 10 to 15 seconds is mm -hmm. uh how you how, how long you can do it so like you know you do it uh the sprint because like one of the mistakes i see is also people doing the sprint that they do the sprint for something yeah 10 to 10 to 12 seconds and then they rest only like 10 seconds again and they go again so that hit hit uh, mentality of not resting almost at all and trying to <laughs> go as fast as possible all the time is actually not really you know, productive in my view, because you're not really actually training your maximum, your the second set of the sprint is going to be like, you know, 80% of your maximum instead of 100%, because you're already tired. And you're not really uh, giving yourself enough time to uh, get back to the baseline. Yeah, people mess this up all the time. And they go, that's because they think of their entertainment classes, you know, the bright light, the pumping, and let's sprint for 30 seconds, and then take 15 seconds off. And they bastardize like Tabata or something. Tabata was only meant to be done for eight rounds, 20 on 10 off. Not for mm -hmm. 55 minutes, but a lot of the exercise classes will take that like, no, you can't recover that fast. And what's going to happen after three or four sets, your form is just going to go and you're more susceptible to injury. So when you're programming a sprint, I mean, go back to looking at yourself as an athlete. You will never see a track athlete run a hundred meters and nine seconds later, run another hundred meters at the same time. They're, they're, they're exhausted. Even yeah. two minutes afterwards when, you know, um, whatever the person is interviewing them, they're still out of breath. And these are world-class athletes. So think about that. You're trying to do the same thing an Olympian sprinter is and trying to recover faster than they do. It doesn't happen. So you want to take at least a one to three, if not a one to six um, work to rest ratio. So let's say it takes you, let's say you do a sprint for 10 seconds. You need to rest at least for a minute to kind of gain, you know, and make sure your ATP is recovered enough. I prefer a little bit longer, but if I get people who have time management issues and you're not necessarily trying to be an Olympic sprinter, but one to six. So the best thing I, you can do is like find a small incline. Doesn't need to be this crazy incline as I talked about before. You just run as hard as you can for 10 seconds. Maybe you do like a small run up. You just do like a light jog and you look at your watch or whatever your timer is, a count in your head for 10. You light jog for two or three seconds and then run as hard as you can for 10 seconds. And then you have a three or four second slowdown. So the whole time is going to take 15 to 20 seconds, but you're really only moving as fast as you can for 10. And then you turn around and you either just walk that, back down that hill slowly, or you walk backwards down that hill. One is going to be great for knee health, and you're also stretching out your hip flexors too because you're reaching back. 
we don't do enough like multi-planar work. So I like people walking backwards if they can, even if they're walking outside, it's great for their VMO. So the part of your, uh, of your quad, that's really great for your knee. So if they're doing that, just walk down, you know, and make sure you recover, maybe do some, um, recovery breathing, just in through the nose, out through the mouth slowly as you're walking back 60 seconds, you do that again. So work time is only like a minute and a half to, you know, maybe two minutes if you're you're doing 12 of these. 10 to 12 of them, good to go with 60-second breather in between. Make sure you just get a nice warm-up. Maybe do some squats. Maybe do some light jogs, something like that. Um, and you're good to go. You do that once a week or once every other week, you're going to be you know so much better for it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Definitely makes a big difference for your mood as well. And, I mean, you can even do it like in between. Like what I like to do is when I'm working during daytime, then I'll take like some movement breaks and it's not like an actual workout it's just yeah like some brisk movement where i will go for a sprint or something i'll just go outside and sprint for you know uh, 60 meters or something uh, and uh, that's it and then i'll go back to work and over time if you do it like you know three or four times a day then i mean you're gonna get your pretty much that workout in uh, quite easily and uh, it's very good for productivity cognition and just you know breaks up the you know stagnation that you get in your workday as well yeah, and it helps the blood flow to the brain too, because like, they looked at people sitting around for longer than an hour, and you're starting to lose some blood flow to the brain. And you just kind of, you know, if you get up every, you know, two minutes every hour and walk around, do some sprints, something like that. Um, when I was training for a Spartan race, they do the same thing. I would I'd be, I'd work for an hour or something, I'd go outside, I'd run a mile, you know, eight, nine, and then I'd run three or four miles in the day, but it didn't seem like that taxing to me as opposed to running three or four in a row so i call that like exercise snacking or just quick bursts of workouts or yeah you know you got a pull-up bar hit 10 15 pull-ups whatever you can you know go back to work get some water things like that it, it doesn't take that much to maintain a healthy lifestyle and feel so much better and it doesn't seem so daunting when you're doing exactly what you said like you went outside you did that you, you ran a quick quick sprint you took a 10 minute walk after your meal maybe you say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do this for hour one hour two maybe i'm gonna foam roll you know my well not really lower back you don't want to get that area but you want to foam roll your lats or your pecs or areas that get tight and eventually you're gonna have better quality of tissue and better quality movement yeah what is uh and you mentioned like this you know stretching and mobility so what is the minimum method for mobility because you know i think that's one of the most underrated like thing things about fitness and uh yeah like even well-being and longevity yeah i mean it, really around 90 seconds to two minutes uh, of mobility per kind of like major body part or area for example so world's greatest stretch it's called the world's greatest stretch for a reason because you're getting so much out of it so you're getting hip flexors you're getting calves you're getting lumbar you're getting lower back you're getting mid back you're getting chest assuming you're done it, doing it correctly so we've hit like five to seven reps per side of the world's greatest stretch and how I've got video. You, yeah, so, yeah. So let's say like there's tons of videos online. Um, I've got them too. But basically, you go in a push-up position. You bring your outside leg as far out as you can. So you're you've got that foot flat on the ground. So think about if your left leg is kind of by your left hand, then right there you're stretching out your adductors. You're stretching out your hip flexors of the other side, and they're stretching out your soleus and your and your basically your calf region, uh, the opposing side. Then if your left foot is on the outside of your left hand, you take your left hand up. And you reach across your body so your left hand is underneath your right hand so there you're stretching out your upper back you're stretching out your mid back and then you open up and you rotate away from the body so you're pushing your knee out and you're rotating away so you're kind of like stretching out your chest as you open it up and you kind of thread your arm through you do five to seven of those rotations 
and you switch sides. Like that'll take you one or two minutes right there. And you're getting a, you're getting a good bang for your buck. And then from there, I, I like people hitting their glutes a little bit more. So maybe you lay on your back and you do some glute bridges. You know, so you're just kind of thrusting in the air, hit 15 to 20 of those because glutes are a very weak and underutilized area and people get back pain often because we're sitting down so long and our glutes aren't as active, specifically the glute uh, minimus, which is kind of like on the upper part of your, you know, bottom part of your lower back. So if we strengthen those areas, so if we, if we make the joints more mobile, then the muscles around it are going to work better. If you've got a tight joint and stiffness, anybody's like does a squat or something, they like their hips, hips are tight or their ankles are tight. You're never going to be able to get full range. You're never going to be able to stretch out that muscle and shorten the muscle as much as you can. And that's when you're going to get most out of the muscle fibers and then you're going to get, you know, satellite cell response or whatever exercise that you're doing. And mobility can also be mobility when you're, when you're under load. So if you're doing full range of movements, if you're doing a full range squat, a full range bicep curl, they've looked at the stretching under load and that actually helps your stretching and your mobility overall. So I like mm. people doing like a five to seven minute kind of active warm up, whether it's getting the heart rate up a little bit. Um, you know, they used to the CSCS protocol, the strength and conditioning used to say raise, activate, mobilize, potentiate. So you raise your heart rate, you're going to activate um, the muscle that you're going to be working. So say it's the glutes, and then you kind of mobilize by doing some mobility work and potentiate is just kind of like doing some striking patterns or some bounding. Um, so five to seven minutes of that is going to be one of the best things that you can do. It's going to prep you for your workout. And at a minimum, if you're going to do squats, if you're squatting and you don't want to do all this stuff, you don't want to do the ankle mobilization, you don't want to do anything, do a world's greatest stretch, do 10 or 20 bodyweight squats as low as you can without your hips kind of tucking all the way underneath you. And that's how it's going to prep you for that load for the movement. You never just want to jump straight into like, oh, I'm going to hit 80% of my one rep max without my body being prepared for that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's very mobility is yeah huge for just overall you know feeling like a lot of what I've noticed is that you know doing this regular mobility exercise then you're never gonna have like almost any this back pain or hip pain or or anything of like that at all and yeah. Uh, yeah like you know when you are sitting all day then you know you need to, like the couch stretch I think is what it's called where you're mm -hmm. like you're I don't know how you describe it but you're like kneeling on your one knee and the other other knee is like you're pushing it stretching your uh, hip and uh, that's like exactly what you need to do to counteract the sitting and if you look at how much people sit per day then uh, and they don't like counteract that then yeah it's just over time it's gonna just uh, a recipe for injury <laughs> yeah because you're sitting and your, and your hip flexors are short right so they're short and there's generally speaking there's something else short and overactive so if you think about your hip flexors, and that's more than just kind of the hip pocket. That's also your rectus femoris, the, the longest part of your quad. So if you're going to like, if you straighten your leg out right now and you see kind of a muscle pop out of the front part of your leg, that's your rectus femoris. So that flexes the hip, but that's often shortened when we're sitting down too much. So you have the couch stretch or you do like a, a kneeling hip flexor stretch, those are great things to do. And that's why I, I like people flipping over and then hitting their glutes because the glutes were long and underactive. And then your hip flexors were short and overactive. So you think about what you're doing in a day and what positions you're in. So most people like have tight pec minors because we're always forward. So if you're going to do back or, or chest for that matter, maybe a foam roll or those percussion guns, those actually work quite well. 30 seconds to a minute. You can stretch it after foam rolling, but stretching itself will hit the mechanoreceptor response and stretch out that tissue. You stretch it out and then you maybe do some rows to activate the back, which is underactive and lengthened 
And that right there, just doing a couple of those movements is going to make your chest press better. It's going to make your back more active because you loosened the tight pec minor. You never, mm. you don't need to stretch a muscle that's already long. So a lot of people like stretching their hamstrings because it feels good. Sure, mm. it feels good. But that doesn't mean stretching the hamstrings is good for you because if you have overactive hip flexors that like we've talked about, your hamstrings are attached to your pelvis. So if you stretch out your hamstrings, what happens is your hip flexors are able to pull forward more. So they're pulling your hips up into more of an anterior tilt. So it's loading your lower back more. So stretching the hamstrings actually was worse for your hip flexor issue and only felt good because you're stretching them and it's just a good sensation. So mm. what you would rather do is stretch out the hip flexors and then getting the glutes going. The same thing when people are like doing like a hamstring stretch and they pull their toe up, like, oh, I feel that stretch much more. That's just mm. the nerve. That's your that's your tibial nerve and your and, and your uh, so they make the gastroc nerve um, or is it extensor halicus? That's what your big toe basically. There's a nerve in the bottom of your foot. If you pull it, you're feeling the nerve, the sensation of the nerve. It's not actually that your tissue is stretching out more. So there's a lot of things that just because it feels a certain way doesn't mean it is. And then we can go into nuances too. Like if you're doing a bicep curl, yeah, you should feel your bicep, right? But if you're doing a squat, you're not necessarily going to feel like your glutes maximally contracting because it's such a big movement. You've got so many muscles working and so many muscle groups. But if you're doing an isolation exercise, absolutely, you should be feeling that area. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And uh, one thing I think is important as well, like you, you don't want to be like too stretchy or like like some people like you know it's like you know this all in mentality so like if you're if you're someone who's very good in flexibility and stretching or you like train it a lot then actually that can make you like somewhat more prone to injury if you do like heavy weightlifting uh, and vice versa like if you're very stiff and not flexible at all then that, that's also like you know harmful for the weightlifting performance so it's like you know it's like you know some the person who uh you know is very flexible and does only stretching then they need also some of this like say strength training and stiffness in that because if you're like very limble nimble and very soft when doing like a heavy back squat or a bench press whatever then it's actually very actually may increase your risk of injury because you do want to maintain some stiffness and uh, tightness when you are executing these heavy movements uh, but if someone is doing only those things and they're very stiff then they need this uh you know flexibility and loosen up <laughs> their muscles so it's you know some people need to do this thing other people need to do that thing uh, but they are like they tend to gravitate towards something that they like or something mm -hmm. that they're good at yeah we're, we're, we do the things that are easy that's why it's so good to have a coach. You look at any professional athlete. They have a coach. They have a trainer. They have a strength coach. Like I'm, mm. I'm doing a bodybuilding competition the first time in 10 years. I have a coach because mm. like, oh, why do you need a coach? Like everybody needs a coach. You know, like you, you, you want to listen to somebody. So then I, I can just follow what they're saying exactly. And because I'm still going to fall into the things that I like doing. Not necessarily, he's like, oh, you, you need more posterior delts. You need more rhomboids. You need this. I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? But <laughs> I'm doing it because he sees that. So he, he's figuring out the things that I, I'm not doing. So that's what, like, if, if you love stretching, you love whatever, and you're really flexible in a certain area, well, you don't really need to stretch out that area anymore. The areas that are specifically tight, sure. But you need some rigidity. Like you need to be, you know, pliability is great, but being strong to your point is like, you need to be able to lock in. And as you're, you know, bench pressing, your the shoulder blades come back and you're driving through and you're activating everything. That's why I like people on machines a little bit more sometimes when they're trying to add muscle tissue because you're stable and you're locked in and you're able to push that as hard as you can. Because if you don't have stability when you're doing free weights, 
then that's all of a sudden going to be also a recipe for disaster because you you don't have enough stability throughout your entire you know connect chain ankle up and you know head down Hmm. Uh, you know so like look at what you're not doing and sprinkle you know the things that you're not doing in there whether that's you know in in business if you're if you don't read like grab up grab a book it'll really help you out in neuroplasticity as well so just you know, gotta gotta do those things that are a little bit hard for us, so that we can adapt, whether that's mentally or physically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about like uh, sleep? Like, is there a minimal method for that? Like, can you like get away with the sleep, or how does that look? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yes, everybody should be having. I mean, if you look at research, six to nine hours of, of night of sleep, but consistent sleep seems to be. If you can't get that six to nine, I'll say seven to nine. I, I kind of like that number better. If you can't get your seven to nine hours of sleep per night, consistent sleep has been proven to be incredibly beneficial. So there was a study that they did on uh, college students that were kind of got random sleep versus college students that got less than, I think it was six hours a night, but they slept consistent times. Their test scores were actually better because they got the consistent sleep because their circadian rhythm became regulated more. So the best thing that you can do, like one, yes, get seven to nine hours of sleep. But two, if that seven to nine hours of sleep can be at consistent times, so let's say you go to bed at 10 p.m. and you wake up at 6 a.m. seven days a week, within an hour, I know on the weekends, maybe when people want to stay up an hour later, within an hour, that'll just regulate regulate your entire endocrine system. So your hormones, your testosterone, your estrogen, your cortisol, all of those sorts of things would be more regulated and you'd be more ready for the day. You'll need less caffeine. You need less stimulants. You're going to feel better. Um, you're going to store less body fat, all, all these sort of mechanisms. Um, you're going to crave less highly processed foods that are, you know, have no nutrient density to them. So if you can't get seven to nine hours of sleep, at least go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, seven nights a week. And then your day sets up your night. Like I mentioned earlier, getting sunlight early in the morning, that is huge for lots of people, especially if you're living somewhere cold. Like I know we, we both live somewhere cold, like in Chicago, it's cold, but you know, I'll, I'll drive, you know, when the sun is coming up, I'll roll down my window so that um, the, those lux rays aren't getting blocked by the window. So I'm getting the, the peripheral sun rays in my eyes. So it's waking me up. I'm also getting a little bit of cold, which will activate, um, you know, brown, brown adipose tissue, which is metabolically active. So there's little things that I'm doing. So that sets up my circadian rhythm for the day. That'll set up your adenosine production, which works hand in hand with melatonin. And then that'll trigger melatonin response at night too. So that consistent sleep, seven to nine hours if possible, sunlight early, and try not to have caffeine you know, within 10 to 12 hours of going to bed as much as possible. Hmm. Um, and then alcohol too, try to avoid that at night because you, you'll basically more pass out. You get less consistent, right. deep, restful sleep. So these little protocols are good. So change the behaviors first. And then if you change the behaviors, you've done everything you could, you turned off you know, the overhead lights, you wear your blue light blocking glasses, you turn down your room to 65 degrees or so, um, Fahrenheit, you probably go by Celsius, um, you know, then, then maybe you look at like, oh, maybe I should take some melatonin, maybe I should do some GABA, maybe I should do something like that. Because people always want to go straight to supplements right away without mm. addressing the problem with behavior. Yeah, yeah, that's true. For sure. I, I think it's yeah, like, from the circadian rhythm side, yeah, it's very important to maintain that consistency. And uh, you know, some so, some people like even have these, let's say, siesta sleeps or something like that. So if you aren't able to get the full eight hours per night, then you can like make up with it a little bit if you have like a nap in the afternoon. And uh, they actually do find that the like the napping is also linked to like reduced uh, heart disease mortality. So probably has to do with like the 
rest less stress and also catching up on some of the the sleep yeah and if, if the nap like people are like oh should i nap should i not like well if you're the person that naps and you can't sleep at night then you've got to avoid the nap like if you're napping at 5 p.m and you go to bed at 9 that's probably too close mm. but if you're napping earlier in the day and you can stay within our sleep cycles of around an hour and a half so 90 to 110 minutes where you're waking up when you're back into that lighter sleep stage so when you wake up after you know 90 minutes assuming you can wake up that amount of time then you're ready to go then you're fine but if that nap keeps you awake at night or it makes you more tired the rest of the day then you need to go through that thought cycle again and think is this helping me or is this is this a hindrance i love taking my naps i, I was on a phone uh, call with a client a couple of days ago he's like oh I, I i get home i have pizza i have whatever which we don't even get into that he's like and then i fall asleep I'm like well, i'll tell you why you fall asleep i fall asleep on the couch for a couple of hours and then i can't sleep at night but he falls asleep at 6 or 7 p.m well mm. of course you can't sleep at night because you're trying to go to bed two hours later so what happens is the adenosine in your body, which you know makes you tired. That's why when you have caffeine, it blocks the kind of adenosine receptors. It makes you tired. That gets that gets hindered because it builds up throughout the day. So that if you don't have enough of that at night, and if you not don't have enough melatonin, what's going to happen is you're going to stay awake. Mm. You know, and then then it's just going to be a cycle. And then you've got to, you're not going to get less sleep. Then you have to have caffeine earlier in the morning, and you just do all that sort of stuff. Like caffeine is not bad by any means. I love caffeine. It's just we can use it correctly and you know, wait with that cortisol awakening response 60 to 90 minutes in the morning after waking up so we don't have to have as much so we're not completely blocking down that adenosine response so like all these little behaviors if you look at it all as a whole it seems like a lot but like oh i can do this i can wait 60 minutes for my coffee i can get up in the morning i can have some i can do some sunlight i can walk 10 minutes after meals i can do one workout a week like we, we can do this like we can figure it mm. out yeah absolutely um it, you mentioned like some supplements so like is there any like minimum supplements or what was your philosophy about those yeah so i mean i think pretty much everybody should be taking a multivitamin i mean for the most part uh multivitamin um an omega omega-3 would, would be great most people are probably gonna need some vitamin d uh, and i think everybody male female working out or not should be taking creatine monohydrate like there's 1400 plus studies on creatine now it's literally the most studied supplement in the world i think by now we know that it's safe but mm -hmm. there's cognitive capabilities that are, that are happening with it it's helping neurodegenerative disease it's helping you have more energy like there's so many things like untapped now that they're looking at creatine because they were originally looking at it just for like you know helping atp production but now like just taking creatine male female like it's beneficial if you're working out for sure uh, but yeah, multi, um, omega, you know, some sort of like fish oil, if that's not your thing, you can, you can get the, the APA, um, and, and creatine. I think that's right. There is going to be good magnesium. I think is probably one too, that a lot of people, um, I saw numbers like 70 plus percent of people are lacking magnesium as well. Magnesium is going to help with the you know, relaxation, help you sleep better, help you go to the bathroom too. Just don't take too much of it. Mm, gotcha. Nice. Um, so uh, yeah, how do you let's say put it all together? Like, is there any um, I don't know thread or something like that to like uh, connect all these uh, activities in your day, or is it yeah just does it have to happen? Like, depends on the person or when they do it or something like that. Or is there any like structure that you like yes. to follow? Yeah, the full on structure. So um, I briefly mentioned this in the beginning. So there's min minimum mentality. So let's go. That's your person that's like maybe just starting. They're on the couch trying to get to the starting line 
Then you have your level up. That's a person that's sort of in the race. They've started working out, but you know they need to go a little bit more. And then you have your max out. That's you know the, a lot of people are probably listening to this, or somebody you know like ourselves that just want to do more. So basically, at the end of every chapter, I have your protocols. Are you a let's go a level up or max out? And then there's a checklist. Like if you're a level up, you do this. Okay, for sleep, you're turning off the lights. You're you're wearing blue light blocking glasses. Maybe you're doing some candles. Maybe you're taking a hot shower, like just that at a minimum. And then the level up people do everything in the let's go plus some level up mentalities. So maybe they're doing this. Maybe they look at the horizon at night. So you're just adding these things. It's kind of like a buffet. You can check off what you want to do. And each chapter is set up like that. And then at the end of the book, there's an entire protocol for every single thing that you can do. And you can pick and choose what you want, but like here's the minimum behaviors for for exercise, for mobility, for sleep, for cognition, for breathing that you need to do. And, and it's broken down just like a couple things a day per chapter. So they don't seem so daunting. But for most people, like just you know, get get the walks in, get some movement in, um, you know, practice your your breathing techniques, which can be physiological size, which could be box breathing, anything like that. There's a whole chapter in there. And there's um, called the three to be free. So movement protocol. So it's, you know, you get up, you do a hip flexor stretch or the couch stretch, you do a cat camel, which kind of open up the back and um, lower back and shoulders. And then you do like a glute bridge, which I added a towel below it. So you kind of work your um, neck flexors, which often get weak because we're lengthened because we're looking forward so much. We become kyphotic and our posture goes to crap. Um, so you do that like every single day. So there's things in there you say you should do every single day. And there's things they do. Okay, I do this two times a week. And it's a it's a full on protocol for whatever your minimum mentality is. Mm, gotcha. Nice. Yeah, I, I like that a lot that there's, you know, difficult, difficulty levels. And uh, because, yeah, what, what works for an athlete is completely different for a beginner and uh, vice versa. And so there always has to be you know, tailored to the individual and their like starting point, because yeah, like, you know, you shouldn't expect to run a marathon if you never run it. And uh, yeah, like if you make progress in your marathon time, then you probably need to do something else. And then you start off at, then what you started off at. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, like uh, slow and steady will win the race consistency over intensity, you know, every single time. And then once you have the consistency, then you add the intensity. That's like us. Like we're, we're, we've been consistent for so long, now, like, what can we do to add some more intensity while I know that I'm going to be consistent? Hmm. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, yeah, where can people get the book? Yeah, the book's um, available on on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, joeytherman.com. Amazon, generally, whatever country you're in, is going to be the easiest. Um, joeytherman.com, I've got all the links. Joey Thurman Fit on my social media, I've got links there as well. Nice, awesome. We'll put the links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, before I ask my last question, where, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, that's easy. Mainly mainly social channels, Joey Thurman Fit, T-H-U-R-M-A-N-F-I-T. Um, yeah, joeytherman.com. And I've got um, YouTube, it's Joey Thurman Fitness, but pretty much easy. You Google me, I'll, I'll pop up. Nice. And uh, my last question is, um, what's this one piece of advice or habit that you wish you adopted sooner? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I think giving giving myself some grace and not having to crush every part of life. Hmm. You know, now that I have a son who's almost five years old and um I, I try to do so much so fast and always do different jobs and and be a hundred percent on everything. And that's just not how math works. So realizing that I need to pull back, focus on my sleep, nutrition, and do these small behavior changes, which will create a big impact. Um, I finally just 
realized this over the past couple of years. So I, I was going too hard, too fast. I was getting, I was getting really burned out. And mm. once I started focusing on one thing, then I had all these opportunities kind of just come to me. Mm. Nice. Yeah, that's definitely good advice. If you spread too thin, then uh, yeah, you can't like pinpoint or laser focus. Yeah, you can, you can't cover that bread if you spread too thin. Mm. Yeah, or bread if, <laughs> if you're if you're having bread. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> keto, keto bread. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So great talking with you, and uh, yeah, let's stay in touch. All right. Appreciate it, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to support this podcast, then check out our sponsors and leave our review on iTunes or Spotify. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.